I got this message this morning from Bono. And, and most of us, we're always, whether we're in Ireland or here, or whatever it is, Bono has been a very Irish part of our lives. And he said this. He said, River Dance. Are we ready? Patrick, he drove out the snake with his prayers. But that's not all it takes. With the smoke symbolizes an evil that arises and hides in your heart as it breaks. And, 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 and the evil, the darkness that lives in some men, but in sorrow and fear, that's when saints can appear. You like that, Father? Ireland's sorrow and pain is now the Ukraine. And St. Patrick's name is now Zelensky. Prestige heads and welcome to your weekly free American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my comrade in arms, Derek Davison. Derek, how's everything going? Um, everything is, uh, you know, it's okay. It's St. Patrick's Day, so I'm. Oh uh, yeah, St. Patrick's Day. Are you? Are you of Irish descent? Uh, I'm of substantially less Irish descent than I would like people to believe, uh, <laughs> but I do have some Irish uh, descent. Yes. So what are you doing to celebrate? Are you doing anything to celebrate? Uh, well, it's both Purim well, and, and St. Patrick's Day. I'm here with you, for Danny, you. and we're, we're recording <laughs> the news for the American Prestige podcast. Uh, and uh, later on, we're going to be doing the West Wing thing. So I guess that's my Oh, yeah, it's a big week for uh, Bessner so. Davison con- content. Yeah. You know, this is really... People are going to look back on this, you know, like Lennon yeah, and McCartney absolutely. getting together. People will write stories about the first day we Zoomed. <laughs> Very sure, detailed sure. stories. But but. That? As always, there there are lots of things going on in the world, particularly um, in, in Ukraine, uh, and particularly related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So why don't we start there? So we haven't done an update since last week. So why don't you just let listeners know, Derek, what is the exact state of play uh, in Russia, Ukraine? Where's the Russian military? Uh, how has fighting gone, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I guess somewhat Fortunately, since we haven't done an update since last week, uh, the Russian military looks like it's pretty much in the same place. Uh, it's hard to know with any exactitude because, um, you know, you get uh, limited coverage and limited perspectives uh, in a situation like this. But um, th- they haven't, don't seem to have advanced uh, on Kiev. Uh, they don't seem to have advanced uh on in the south even which is where the russian military was making steady progress uh they seem to have been stymied um on the road to odessa uh it looks like and they're still besieging uh kharkiv uh mariupol a couple of other smaller cities or towns uh in eastern and southern uh ukraine the big uh the big developments were more of the um, airstrike or uh, atrocity, I guess, variety. There's a report from uh, Wednesday uh, that the Russian Russians bombarded a theater in Mariupol that was being used as a bomb shelter. 
there's still, as we're recording this kind of middle of the day on Thursday, uh, still uh, unanswered questions about how many people uh, may have been killed or wounded in that strike. Uh, they're still digging through the rubble, and there was apparently a bomb shelter within the theater. Uh, so it's possible that that people were able to get into that bomb shelter and, and ride it out, uh, but it's, it's unclear. Uh, the other major uh, strike of this week was uh, a, a Russian attack um, on, I believe it was over the weekend, uh, a Russian airstrike on a military base in Yavariv. I hope I'm not butchering that too badly, which is in far western Ukraine. It's west of uh, the city of Lviv, which is the sort of western, major western city in Ukraine. It's only about seven and a half miles from the Polish border, uh, so uncomfortably close to, uh, I would say, NATO soil. Um, the reports there are again, kind of, uh, you know, disputing or disputed between the two sides. Uh, the Ukrainian side claimed, you know, a few dozen people were killed, uh, another 130 or so were wounded. Uh, the Russians are claiming that they killed scores of foreign mercenaries and foreign weapons. uh, And I think there's some reason to believe that's the case. It seems that uh, because of its proximity to Poland, this base was being used as a staging area and a training ground for the foreign legion, the foreign legionaries, I guess, uh, that have been responding to you, the Ukrainian call to uh, to come and fight. Uh, they've been staging their weapons shipments coming in from NATO countries. Uh, we'll you know talk about a big one that's coming here in a minute have been, some of them at least, have probably been going through this base, so there is some um, reason to to give uh, credence to those Russian claims that that base, A, was a, you know, not a legitimate target, first of all, uh, and B, that, that they may have done uh, considerable damage to those uh, those elements. So what are the military strategists and tacticians, <laughs> not, not only the armchair ones on Twitter, but people who actually know this stuff saying about the uh, capacities of the Russian military? Because from where I stand as a, as a non-specialist in Russian military operations, it's pretty embarrassing. And, and this actually is pretty bad for the Russian military's deterrent effect in the future. I, I would say that's true. We've gone, I think we've gone past the point now where a lot of the talk of you know how badly the Russian military was performing was, I think, wish casting, and we've yeah, over, to a overstated, point, right? Yeah, overstated. Particularly at the beginning, yeah. We've now gotten to a point where I think it, it's actually true. The fact that they're stalled out all over the map, it looks like it doesn't seem like they're stalled because they're regrouping or because they're like you know moving into a new phase of the war and kind of resupplying or anything. It just looks like they're stuck. Like bottom line, right. uh, yeah. they're not moving. They've been beaten or held off, uh, you know, through some. Uh, in a couple of cases, it looks like clever use of the terrain. Uh, there's a, a column of Russian armor that's been north of Kiev for some time now. It looks like it's stuck in part because uh, somebody, some enterprising individual uh, or individuals flooded uh, a lot of the territory north of Kiev uh, intentionally. So, I mean, things like that seem to be slowing them down. Uh, There are, I mean, and again, there are the reports that you can't confirm about uh, lack of supplies, lack of food, people deserting. Um, All these things are, you know, impossible to know for certain as far as I I, I can tell. Uh, There was a story in the, I think, 
New York Times. I mean, you know, you always have to take these with a grain of salt because they're they're laundering, and uh, off, you know, oftentimes they're laundering sort of the Pentagon's view of things. But the claim from the U.S. has been uh, is now that that uh, I think around seven thousand Russian soldiers uh, have been killed, and that's. They say that's a conservative estimate. Uh, the Ukrainian estimate has been much higher than that, and I think is is again sort of uh, fueled by a little bit of a need to to play propaganda games and and uh, claim to be you know having much more success than they are. Uh, I don't know. Derek, just one, you know, one quick point. One quick point: yeah. uh, seven thousand would be an incredibly high number. Well, just right. to underline so, that. So that, I mean, that's like really the, the Ukrainian high. number's yeah. been double that. Yeah. Uh, about double that. So th- that's that seems absurdly high. 7,000 seems incredibly high, you know, to the point where I think even that number may be, uh, may, may not be legitimate, but I, I don't know. I, I can't evaluate that. This is what the, the U.S. claims is a conservative estimate of the number of casualties. If that's true, and, you know, again, I don't know, but if that's true, then you're at the level where you can start to see whole units break down. I mean, the, the rubric is, I think, 10% uh, casualties in a given unit takes that unit effectively out of the fight. Um, and the Russians sent in uh, somewhere around 150,000 soldiers uh, to, to have lost, I guess that's about 5% of that number within three weeks. Uh, is shocking uh, and and would really have serious implications for the their unit cohesion and and their ability to to get anything done. Now there there there's an influx. There's been an influx supposedly uh, of fighters from Chechnya. There's supposedly the Russians are supposedly recruiting potentially thousands of Syrians from w- either from within the Syrian military or kind of uh, allied militias, paramilitary groups. Um, but you can't just throw those units in. Into the into Ukraine uh, and expect them to be able to operate in conjunction with the Russian military uh, without training, without you, you know drilling on those things. It's it's not uh, a one to one replacement. It's just you know shoving more bodies into the uh, the conflict. Which Derek, I, I should say, um, my you know admittedly cursory knowledge of Russian military history though does suggest that one of the major resources that the Russian military has historically had is is literally just bodies being able to throw bodies at a military encounter, um, but things are different in 2022 than they were in 1941 or 1942. So I was wondering, has there been any domestic reaction? Have there been any developments uh, in that uh, sphere as the war has proceeded and kind of like ground down? As far as I can tell, that's been very quiet. Um, you know, there was the f- that that initial flurry of anti-war protests. You know, there's been a, 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 a an out. I guess is outflux a word. There's been you know a, a lot of people an leaving exit. <laughs> Russia, uh, an exit, uh, an exodus, whatever you want to call it, uh, of people from Russia. There's been a lot of uh, crackdowns on independent media, social media sites being, you know, entire social media sites being shut down. There was a big weepy story in the Washington Post, I think, a couple of days ago about Russian influencers sobbing because they weren't going to be on Instagram anymore or something. Uh, just ridiculous stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's been there have been signs certainly i would think if you're you know somebody if you're in russia you're going to notice that facebook isn't there anymore you're going to notice that you know some of these media outlets uh, have been shut down you're going to notice 
Um, you know, if you have a personal connection to the the war, maybe you you find out that uh, a friend's son has been killed or wounded, something like that. But uh, as far as I can tell, there haven't been any major protests uh, in the last week or so. Uh, there haven't been there hasn't been much in terms of a like mass. Uh, awareness of the war, how it's going, or anything of that nature. A- again, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, operating on on my what I'm able to to glean from uh, what I've seen. So why don't we then turn now to a, a little bit of uh, you know U.S. Ukraine relations, and particularly Volodymyr Zelensky's speech, which he gave via video feed before the U.S. Congress. So Derek, why don't you just you know describe the speech and then the uh, American reaction to it? So Zelensky's been doing this uh, in a couple of places. He gave, I think he spoke to the UK Parliament a few days ago. He spoke to the Canadian Parliament earlier this week. And on Wednesday, he gave a speech, uh, all virtually, obviously, by, I think, I assume Zoom or something of that nature, to the US Congress. Um, I, it, it seems to have been fairly heavy on, you know, asking for things, uh, kind of trying to put uh, Joe Biden on the spot to some degree. He pressed his claim, his his request for a no-fly zone, uh, but then suggested an alternative, which would be uh, more weapons, basically more anti-aircraft weapons, uh, more aircraft. There's this, you know, uh, lingering story about uh, giving Ukraine a, a fleet of Polish MiG-29s that just won't go away, even though logistically I don't know uh, how you could pull that off. So he he's pushing still the no-fly zone, but I think he's recognized that he's not going to get that. And so he, now he's using it to kind of tug at people's heartstrings in order to then turn around and say, well, if you don't want to do that, then you could give us, you know, more uh, anti-aircraft weapons, more anti-tank weapons. And that seems to have worked. Uh, after the speech, the Biden administration announced another $800 million dollars uh, in new weapons. Uh, they'd already earlier in the week announced another $200 million, So that's a cool $1 billion for the week uh, from the Biden administration that will include uh, portable anti-aircraft systems, portable anti-tank weapons, uh, there's been talk of helping the Ukrainians somehow, again, logistically, I don't know how you would do this, but helping them to acquire more sophisticated anti-aircraft systems. Uh, these would be probably older Russian-made models like the S-300. Uh, and there's also some talk of supplying them with drones, not the very expensive Reaper drones, but something a little uh, smaller. Uh, it's called a switchblade. Uh, it's a portable uh, kamikaze drone. Uh, also, you might hear them called loitering munitions. Uh, the U.S. may supply Ukraine with, with a number of those. So it's it's kind of interesting because the way that I view it, Zelensky is is obviously wanting to get weapons so that he's able to, I think, force some sort of Russian negotiation. And 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 it's interesting because this could either lead to some sort of Syria-like disaster, or you know maybe Ukraine gets enough weapons and actually forces some sort of peace um, deal. So what do you think about that? Do you think those are his strategic calculations? He essentially just wants to make it as difficult for Russia as possible to force a peace deal. I think so. I mean, you know, they they talk about we're going to win, we're going to drive the Russians out. I think that's uh, you know, propaganda or morale boosting, let's say. Um I I think his his goal is to bog the Russians down enough that they're willing to to negotiate. There's been there was some progress Eh, maybe 
uh, on that front this week. The, there yeah, are, so the let's two turn sides, to that, the peace talks. Yeah. Um, so the two sides are apparently meeting virtually again uh, on a daily basis now. Instead of these like once a week or once every couple of days sessions in Belarus, they've decided to just remain in, in daily contact virtually. Um, both sides, or people on both sides, have, have suggested Zelensky on the one, one hand, Sergei Lavrov on the, on the Russian side, have been uh, suggesting that there's more flexibility in everybody's negotiating positions. Uh, Lavrov in particular talked earlier this week about movement in, in terms of uh, a Ukrainian declaration of neutrality. And, uh, you know, that was that's obviously one of the, the main points of contention for Russia here. Uh, so if they did manage to come to an agreement on that, it could go a long way toward uh, putting together a, a more comprehensive peace deal. Uh, the Financial Times on Wednesday... Uh, reported uh, that they'd been given or they'd seen a leaked copy of a 15-point draft peace plan. Uh, everybody sort of disavowed this, and I don't know the provenance of it or how reliable uh, that story was. But one of the things it did talk about was this idea uh, of neutrality along the lines of, say, what Austria uh, you know, what Austria has or what, what Finland has, where uh, you have some guarantees of security. Uh, in Ukraine's case, this would involve you know, pledging not to join NATO or any other uh, foreign military alliance or to allow foreign bases or military hardware to be stationed on Ukrainian soil in return for assurances that they would be protected and the assurances would come from third parties. So they'd come from the United States, they'd come from Turkey. Uh, apparently the Ukrainians are very keen that Turkey be involved in this uh, and maybe the UK or, or some other, you know, European states. It's unclear. So, so, you know, maybe there's some movement there. I, I don't know how much and uh, every kind of positive word that gets said here out of either side gets countered later on by uh, somebody else on that side you kind of you know talk about the uh, the war in in very uncompromising terms i mean lavrov as i said was uh, said there'd been progress on neutrality i think on wednesday uh, vladimir putin had another one of his uh, patented cabinet meetings where everybody else you know he sits in one place and everybody else sits like school children on the other side of the room uh, and talked i mean very uncompromising language about uh, you know, Russia's not going to back down. We're not going to back down to the West. And, uh, you know, anybody who's uh, expressing any opposition to this war is a traitor. You know, very, very kind of martial language. So who knows? I mean, that could be for, for public consumption. Uh, could be, uh, as always, that he's uh, lost his mind a little bit. Who knows? Uh, but there is some reason to be cautiously optimistic about the, the progress that they've made in negotiations. So we'll continue to update everyone, of course, with um, how Russia, uh, the Russian invasion uh, and the Ukrainian response proceed. But why don't we turn now to the Korean Peninsula, where there have been uh, quite a few developments first in uh, South Korea's presidential election and then also with North Korea testing an ICBM. So, uh, Derek, what's been going on uh, over in Korea? Uh, so, yes, there was a South Korean presidential election, as you say, on March 9th, as we knew uh, shortly after that election, Yoon Suk-yeol, the conservative uh, nominee of the People Power Party, uh, won a relatively narrow victory over uh, Lee Jae-myung of the Democratic Party, which is the same uh, party as Moon Jae-in, uh, the, the current president of South Korea. So he was running as Moon's uh, successor to some degree. So this m means there's going to be a shift 
uh, in South Korean politics back toward the conservatives, back toward the right. For uh, purposes of what we're uh, here to talk about, I think the key uh, thing to, to say there is that uh, South Korean conservative parties generally take uh, a more militant line toward North Korea. Uh, they tend to um, align with the United States, which traditionally uh, kind of tends to take a more militant line toward North Korea. Uh, so we can expect uh, when Moon's term is up in May, you know, he's kind of spent a lot of his he spent a lot of his political capital as president on the idea of building a relationship with North Korea and trying to reduce tensions uh, on the peninsula uh, that's probably going to go out the window uh, Yoon Suk-yeol has talked about you know sort of leaving channels open for uh, negotiation and for diplomacy but uh, he struck a, a more militant tone uh, on that front during the campaign and his political background suggests that that's uh, the direction he's going to go uh, this is is not great uh, news, particularly as we'll, uh, I think, get to next. Uh, the uh, recent news about North Korea maybe testing an intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, it's not great timing for, for to have a more militant South Korean leader coming to power uh, at the same time. But uh, yeah, I suppose it is what it is. But, but here we are. So why don't we get into that test? What, what, is it, what do we know? What don't we know? And what does it appear has happened? So uh, as people likely know, earlier this year, the North Koreans tested uh, a flurry of weapon systems in January in particular into kind of early February. Uh, they tested a, a number of times, uh, a whole bunch of things, mortars and uh, rockets, uh, you know, short range ballistic missiles. Uh, but really, I mean, you know, I think the overall effect was to try and send a message to the United States that, uh, you know, we're here and, and you're going to have to deal with us at some point. Uh, the Biden administration hasn't really made North Korea much of a priority. But what's happened most recently, uh, they've tested twice now, and I think late February and then early this month. Uh, and then again, they, tr they attempted a test uh, a couple of days ago, earlier this week, uh, that failed uh, of what they call a satellite launch system. Uh, th that's probably true uh, as far as it, it goes. North Korea has uh, made uh, the idea or made the made placing a, a reconnaissance satellite in orbit a goal of their kind of military and space program. But that said, South Korea and the United States are both convinced that what these tests really have been uh, are tests of components. Uh, of a of North Korea's largest intercontinental ballistic missile, the Hwasong-17. It could be both. Uh, there is overlap between ICBM technology and space launch technology. So these, these could be dual-use uh, tests, I, I should say that. But if that's the case, if they have been testing components of uh, an ICBM, it's likely uh, that at some point they're going to test the entire thing. Uh, again, North Korea has uh, conducted ICBM tests in the past, but not for, for quite some time now. Uh, those are the kind of tests that really get the United States' attention because those are the kind of missiles that can hit uh, even the continental United States. It's at the sort of maximum end of the North Korean uh, range at this point, but they can they can do it. Uh, so if that happens, if there is a, a full ICBM test, uh, I think you'll you'll see North Korea suddenly become uh, a much bigger deal for the Biden administration. There are also signs, uh, not to heap more misery on this story, but there are also signs of activity uh, that's at our, North that's Korea's. That's our patented uh, thing, uh, that's, Derek. Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> Only sadness on American prestige. There are signs of activity at Pungay-ri, uh, 
which is uh, North Korea's nuclear testing site where they, you know, have tested all of their previous uh, nuclear warheads. That site was mothballed uh, in 2018, 2019 at the sort of uh, height of the the Trump, the Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un relationship when they were really getting along with one another and writing letters to each other and so forth. Uh, The North Koreans shut down Pungeri as a a good faith gesture, uh, you know, and and really, I mean, destroyed parts of it, like buried parts of it. There's signs that they're digging it out now, uh, which could indicate uh, a forthcoming nuclear test, which is another, uh, along with the ICBMs, that's the, the, the thing that's most likely to get uh, U.S. attention. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like things are trending in a very positive direction uh, on the Korean Peninsula right now. But things are looking slightly up, perhaps. Maybe I'm wrong in Yemen, where there, there does seem to be a discussion of a peace conference. So, Derek, what's been going on there? So, there is... Some positive news here. I don't know how positive. Uh, The Gulf Cooperation Council, which is uh, the six-nation bloc, including Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, the UAE, announced uh, earlier this week, they announced, I think, on Tuesday, uh, that they wanted to hold uh, a Yemeni peace conference, multi-day Yemeni peace conference, uh, at the end of this month. So that seems positive. Maybe, you know, this is a chance. They were going to invite uh, representatives of the Ansar Allah or the Houthi, Houthi uh, you know, depending on the terminology you like to use, rebel group, to attend this conference. Any chance, you know, for people to talk uh, talk peace is probably, a, you know, probably a good thing. Uh, the problem is that they want to have the conference in Riyadh. Uh, this is uh, not uh, this is a non-starter for the the, the Houthis. Uh, they said, as they said, you know, the following day they said on Wednesday. Uh, understandably so. I mean, the Saudi Arabia is a combatant in the war. Uh, it is extremely. Uh, strange for a combatant in in the war to also host a peace conference. Uh, the Yemenis want uh, the the Houthis, I should say, want would or would prefer or are calling for a more neutral location. Uh, the good news is there are neutral locations within the GCC. Oman has been you know has maintained diplomatic contact uh, with the Houthis and, and would be, definitely be regarded as as neutral ground by them at least. Uh, Kuwait has hosted. Uh, Yemeni peace conferences in the past, and presumably uh, the Houthis would be comfortable with that as well. Uh, but it remains to be seen if the GCC and and really the country that runs the GCC, Saudi Arabia, uh, is going to be willing to uh, make that sacrifice. Uh, so, some good news, but tempered with this uh, dispute over exactly where uh, everybody should get together. And speaking of good news, let's turn to our final topic, which will be Iran. And it looks like the JCPOA might actually be uh, revivified, as the case may be. Uh, so, Derek, inform us with your knowledge. So there's some some good and bad news here. I'll start with the bad news first, uh, which was uh, a, a missile attack uh, by the Iranians over the weekend by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on the city of Erbil uh, in Iraq, which is the capital of the Kurdistan regional government. Only, I think only one person was wounded in that barrage 
Um, nobody was killed. Uh, I don't know, you know, in terms of material damage. Uh, the Iranians claimed that they were targeting uh, clandestine Israeli intelligence facilities uh, in Erbil, which is a shocking claim to make. Uh, the Israeli government doesn't have relations with Iraq. Uh, it does have, you know, informally good relations with the Kurdistan regional government, but the Kurdistan regional government is not uh, really empowered to do foreign policy work. Uh, so, you know, it's an interesting and, and potentially inflammatory claim. As the New York Times reported on Wednesday, I believe, there is some reason to believe, however, that there are Israeli uh, facilities in Erbil. Uh, and their reporting is that, uh, says that the, the Iranian attack, uh, which the IRGC initially claimed was a retaliation for Israeli strikes in Syria, which the Israelis do all the time against the IRGC, and, and Hezbollah and their allied militias. But according to the New York Times, it was actually retaliation for a drone strike that hasn't been claimed by anybody uh, on an Iranian drone production facility in Kermanshah. Uh, the strike was uh, reportedly conducted with uh, quadcopter drones that just crashed into the facility, destroyed a number of drones. Um, the quadcopters don't have a very long range, so if that's correct, if those details are correct, they probably did have to come from somebody operating inside Iraq. And if it was the Israelis, then, you know, that lends credence to the notion that they're operating out of, uh, let's say, northern Iraq, out of Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, so that's a story to watch. It's, you know, sort of unresolved at this point, but uh, I think something to pay attention to uh, moving forward. Now, as to the good news, uh, the nuclear deal. We'll end on good news for once. Yes, I think we should end on good news for a change. Last week, I think we we may have mentioned that uh, the nuclear deal was back on life support because the uh, Russian delegation had demanded uh, that any Russian interactions with Iran under the terms of sanctions relief provided by the agreement uh, be protected uh, from Western sanctions over Ukraine, that these be treated uh, separately. This was not something that uh, the United States was necessarily keen to do. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened here. Uh, I'm not sure whether the United States provided some assurance to the Russians uh, that you know they would protect uh, these interactions from Ukraine sanctions, or if the Russians have backed down a little bit. Uh, I don't know, uh, but uh, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, the, the Iranian foreign minister, uh, the Iranian foreign minister, excuse me, uh, visited Russia on Tuesday and uh, turns out that uh, uh, he and Sergei Lavrov had a, a very productive, it seems like, meeting. And uh, it, it, it appears that the nuclear deal is once again on track to be completed. Uh, Amir Abdullahian uh, said, told Iranian media on Thursday that there were only two issues standing in the way of, of completing a deal. There had been previously, he said there had been four. So now, you know, whatever, through whatever have that. Uh, mechanism, we've had that, which is good news. Uh, more good news is that uh, the Iranians released a couple of their um, foreign national prisoners, uh, two British 
Iranian-British dual nationals, uh, Nazanin Zaghari, Ratcliffe, uh, Anushe, Ashuri uh, have both been in Iranian custody for several years, uh, Zaghari, Ratcliffe uh, for six, and Ashuri for five, I believe, or rel- you know, roughly. They apparently got uh, the, the UK government to agree to return uh, a, a large sum of money that the Shah's government, the pre-revolutionary Iranian government, had deposited in the UK uh, as advance payment, basically, for weapons systems that were never, or arms sales uh, that were never fulfilled after the revolution. Uh, that was around 400 million pounds, so I think somewhere in like $525 million or something like that. Uh, so the UK uh, seems to have agreed to return that kind of frozen money uh, to Iran in return for this prisoner release. Both prisoners, by the way, are back in the UK now, uh, as far as I know. Uh, prisoner swaps are one of the signs of a deal, I think. Uh, you know, one of the one of the positive signs are that uh, a deal is within sight. There's been talk of needing to sort this out. Iran still has, I think, six or seven uh, U.S. nationals in custody, and uh, the Biden administration has said it won't complete a nuclear deal without uh, somehow securing their release. Uh, the Iranians have been very firm on the notion that that they're not going to include prisoner releases as part of the nuclear deal, but they have been open to negotiating uh, on the side. And I think that's just a technical uh, detail, basically. And, and so, uh, you know, I think you're going to see, if you see more of these prisoner deals being uh, orchestrated, and the United States has a number of Iranians in uh, in custody that Iran would like to see freed, and if you see a, a bigger swap with the U.S., that'll be a sign that, that something's really imminent. But this release of these two British nationals, or Iranian-British nationals is uh, absolutely a positive sign and and great for them and their families of course uh, well Derek thank you as always for your uh, deep and wide knowledge of international affairs uh, everyone please enjoy our interview with Joshua R. Itzkowitz Schifferson uh, it's the first part of what we hope to be a series on the history of NATO expansion and uh, see you all next week happy St. Patrick's Day happy St. Patrick's Day Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly free American Prestige interview. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison, and we are very happy and excited to uh, have on the podcast uh, my old friend uh, Josh Schifferson, better known as Joshua R. Itzkowitz Schifferson, who's an Associate Professor of International Relations and is currently in the process of moving from Boston University to the University of Maryland. So congrats, Josh, and thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks for having me, Derek. And it's a treat to be here. Go Terps. <laughs> yeah, go go Terps. Um, that's what I always say. Um, so uh, basically, Josh... Go school. Yeah, go school. <laughs> we love schools. We love higher ed. It's, it's Education perfect, good. Yeah. I've never it's gone anywhere industry. that wasn't a Division three school, so I'm very go team about these kind of things. <laughs> I'm a go team about every team. team. Yeah, I think they're yeah. all equally beautiful. But the reason that we had Josh on is because he's really the, the world authority um, in, in some real regards about, uh, I don't want to say necessarily the history of NATO expansion, but basically NATO policy after the end of the Cold War, and particularly sort of the early strategic discussions um, between a, a collapsing Soviet Union and a um, soon-to-be unipolar, or be at least it's uh, soon-to-be the unipole uh, United States. Um, so we wanted to have Josh on because, uh, at least from my 
my perspective, I don't want to speak for anyone. I, I think it's been a little bit silly how, for some reason, in the Twitter discourse online, um, it's been equated as some sort of treasonous, quistling type behavior to even mention the um, role that NATO might have played in Vladimir Putin's strategic calculations. And I, I hope that one thing that we do on this podcast is to really push back um, against arguments like that. Um, so uh, thank you, Josh, for coming on. Uh, and I guess like why don't we just start at the beginning? So why don't you just set the scene for what was happening in the late 1980s, early 1990s, um, when uh, the Soviet Union um, is really on its final legs. Now, the, the way the story is usually told is that the Berlin Wall signals the end of the Cold War, you know, formal hostilities and informal hostilities between the United States and Soviet Union. And then, of course, in December 1991, the Soviet Union, after various socialist republics themselves kind of voted to secede from the Soviet Union, essentially uh, collapses. And then we, of course, have various rounds of NATO expansion over the 1990s and 2000s. So, Josh, why don't you just start at the beginning of the story wherever you think it's most important? Sure. So so that's a really good introduction. So let's back up, though, really to the beginning, right? Because the heart of the Cold War, at least in Europe, was this question of the future of Germany and this question of whether uh, Germany would be, would be one state, two states. And if it was going to be one state, how would it be aligned? Would it be aligned with the U.S.? Would it be aligned with the U.S.S.R. or something in between? And this, what became known as the German question really drove many of the strategic calculations of the U.S., the U.S.S.R., the smaller European actors. So at the contest, this is well recounted in Mark Trachtenberg's excellent book, A Constructed Peace. So just take that as a given, because when the Berlin Wall falls in November of 1989, it's both the epitome and the starting gun that this that this German question, whether Germany would be unified, and if so, whether it would be aligned with the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, or with the US and NATO, or neutral, was going to be back on the European agenda. And after this, and, and, and this is relevant because the US doesn't want to see that what was then West Germany uh, out of its alliance system, worrying that doing so would collapse NATO. And the Warsaw Pact under the Soviet Union was keenly aware that if East Germany left, this, left the alliance, that the Warsaw Pact would also collapse and Soviet influence in Europe would be in total arrears. So the fall of the Berlin Wall was the starting signal of a bunch of problems coming down the pipeline. And so after a period of hemming and hawing, it became clear at the very end of 1989 into early 1990 that indeed Germany was going to reunify in some way, shape, or form, raising this question, well, where would it be aligned with? Would it be neutral? Would it be in one camp or another? And the Soviets uh, were trying to slow the process down, even though the Germans, West Germans in particular, really wanted to accelerate the process. And so in early 1990, we kind of reached this decision point. We, the United States, reached this decision point of saying, okay, we're going to allow, we're going to support German reunification, but we want the result to be a unified Germany within NATO. We do not want to see a unified Germany outside of NATO because the U.S., again, wants to retain influence via NATO in what will be post-Cold War Europe. And the U.S. certainly doesn't want to see a unified Germany aligned with the Warsaw Pact. That would, you know, that would be verboten. If, if, if you were uh, in American policy circles. And so the question became, what would it take to move the Soviets on this issue? Because the Soviets have the opposite preferences. And so in February of 1990, uh, then Secretary of State Jim Baker, then Deputy National Security Advisor Bob Gates and a host of others fly to Moscow. They tell Soviet leaders under uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's government that if the Soviets consent to German reunification within NATO, then NATO would expand, but not expand even, quote, one inch to the east. Now, there's been a debate for a very long time over whether that pledge just referred to East Germany, meaning to the east of 
West Germany, or whether it referred to uh, Eastern Europe and the areas to which NATO later, expand, later expanded as a whole. And I think the documentary record we've had over the last decade or so really settles dispositively that they were referring to a broader pledge that NATO would not go east, meaning into East Germany or further parts. So maybe that, you could actually dig in on that for a second. Why do sure. you think it's so clear that that was the claim? What does the documentary record actually say without reading documents? Sure. So for one thing, uh, American policymakers as, and Soviet policymakers were keenly aware that the, the as went East Germany, so went the whole of Eastern Europe. So there's the kind of this broader discussion that all of Eastern Europe is in play, and even the whole of the Warsaw Pact is in some sense uh, in play, point number one. Point number two, when you look at internal American conversations from this period of time, it's clear they're thinking over the future of Europe as a whole, not just the future of East Germany, right? The, few, the question of Germany is embedded in this larger question, but the future of European security order. But let's pretend you haven't read the documentary record. You don't have time to go through it. We don't even need to do that because we now have documentary evidence from a year later, from March 1991, where the quad leaders of NATO, meaning what was then unified Germany, uh, the, the, the political director for the German foreign ministry, the U.S. assistant secretary of state for Europe and their French and British counterparts are discussing this question of will NATO expand, could NATO expand into Eastern Europe as, the, as then Poland, then Czechoslovakia and other states then wanted NATO to do. And American and West German and German leaders were very clear in saying, we made a promise to the Soviets last year, meeting in 1990, that NATO would not expand into Eastern Europe. Therefore, we can't act on what the Poles, the Hungarians, the Czechoslovaks all want. So you don't even need to read the political dialogue. We now have speech evidence from people who had need to know what was being promised, saying, yeah, we made this promise or these, these commitments, as you were. So I think that this was a historic lost opportunity, the fact that NATO continued yeah. after the end of the Cold War, let alone expanded. So why did the United States, why were they so set on continuing NATO after the end of the Cold War? Um, is it just that they want economic access to Europe? They want to dominate the security order? They want to basically dominate the globe? It's the search for primacy. We need to be prime everywhere for, for now and forever, et cetera, et cetera. Is right. that the basic gist of it? And I'm I'm curious, yeah. Josh, if there's anything in the documentary record, like, did anybody consider this question? Like, what are we still doing here? Like, the Soviet Union has fallen. Warsaw Pact has fallen. Why are we still continuing? Should we think about right. dissolving or turning NATO into something else or, you know, uh, adopting some other kind of framework? Was there any discussion of that? Well, so let me take the second question from you, Derek, and then I'll turn to Danny's question because they go together very nicely. De Derek, to your question, um, there were people calling for transforming NATO into a cooperative security institution, doing away with NATO entirely and crafting a uh, different European security order. Uh, some people were saying, hey, look, the U.S. only went into Europe after the Cold War. It had to be dragged in. You know, it didn't really want to do it. Uh, you mean so, after so the end of World War II? After the end of World War II, yeah, excuse yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, Just, the U.S. had no, to be okay. dragged in didn't really want to do it. You know, Truman and Eisenhower all wanted the U.S. to get out. So what the heck are we still going to do in post-Cold War Europe? Derek, to your question. The problem is uh, the, the, the latter group saying, what the heck are we doing here? We're kind of called isolationists and we're kicked out of the policy discussion. The Bush administration really isolated the H.W. Bush administration, excuse me, really isolated them, the policy audience. What? And these uh, somebody wielding the term isolationist in a bad faith way to 
criticize <laughs> dissent uh, before politics. Never would have happened. I don't no, believe it, Josh. Come on. I, I, on, on, this, I, I, well, on this podcast, we, res- we respect America. Now, what, 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 what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Uh, you might think that. I couldn't, very, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> uh, also from that time period also. But, uh, the, but the other piece here, this call for a cooperative security order, were also coming from a bunch of Europeans, uh, the, Gorbachev in particular, but also some of the Eastern Europeans. And the U.S. was really worried about it. Right, The U.S. didn't like the idea of... It didn't think a cooperative security order would work in the first place and also was worried about its own influence, recognizing, for example, that the CSCE, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, was not an institution that was favorable for the United States. So there were these voices pushing for something else, but they were pretty much isolated and, and, and blocked out of the policy agenda. And we should be we should be clear here. Um, Gorbachev had very little political capital by this time. The Eastern Europeans are all... Uh, seeking economic aid, so their interest in a security order is kind of secondary to these bread and butter issues. So the idea of somehow keeping the broad parameters of Cold War era European security intact had a lot of momentum behind it. But Danny, to to your question, why does that translate into NATO sticking around and why does that translate into NATO then expanding? You raised the questions about economic access. Is it about security? Is it about primacy? I would just say NATO is a Rorschach test. It's whatever policymakers wanted it to be. It checks all these boxes. So for those who think that the U.S. has to prepare the ground for economic influence in Europe and keeping NATO intact and keeping influence over the future of Western European security order uh, is a great way of ensuring some market access or having some leverage on that. For those thinking, hey, maybe the Soviet Union or Russia will come roaring back one day, uh, NATO is a way to hedge against that. There are even those who are worried about the, the European Union, which was first getting started at this point in time, transitioning from the EC into the EU, might one day be a security competitor to the United States. And so NATO being around was a way to kind of keep that lid on. That's a primacy agenda. So in some ways, it's the goose that lays the golden egg. It can be whatever you want it to be. And policymakers don't need to decide between these somewhat contradictory impulses. And because primacy and unipolarity are so uh, advantageous to the U.S., some of these problems can just be swept under the rug, or some of the some of the assumptions don't need to be assessed very carefully. Josh, this this sort of takes us uh, a little bit forward in time, but I think it's related to uh, Danny's question, particularly sort of the concerns about loss of influence or primacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my argument about NATO has always been there were two ways that that you could have done things in the 90s that would have led to a better outcome than than what we have obviously right now. Uh, one is to to dissolve altogether and you know put together some other kind of architecture. Uh, I don't know what that would look like, but something else, some alternative. The second is if you if you're going to expand, then go all the way. I mean, add Russia basically to NATO. Uh, I'm curious as to whether there was ever a serious consideration of that and if not i mean what were or if there was what were the the arguments against and i mean my suspicion is it's loss of u.s influence but i i don't know that for for a fact well so you're you're asking specifically about adding russia and going whole hog right uh, or what would be whole borscht i guess (laughs) i guess in, in this context uh so, look, the, the idea of adding Russia at some point was very much uh, at least floated. I won't say it was a serious policy question, but it was floated by many people in the State Department and the Defense Department throughout the 90s into the 2000s. Uh, working with Jim Goldgeier, my, my co-author and friend, we even uncovered evidence the policy planning staff early in the W. Bush administration was considering how might you add Russia one day. 
Um, I think the ambivalence over adding Russia had two sources, right? One is this loss of influence because the U.S. really does like uh, being dominant inside NATO and adding a big state such as Russia uh, really does change the agenda. Uh, the second issue, actually, there are two other issues. The, sec- the, the second issue is that Russia itself wasn't really a viable candidate for NATO membership in a couple of ways. You know, if you add Russia and you have Article 5 commitments, you're kind of promising to defend Russia even against China one day, even in the Pacific Ocean. It's not a particularly happy democracy in the early night, uh, throughout much of this period. It's the economic basket case. You know, it's not really a happy candidate for, for membership. That's number two. And then finally, number three, we have to remember that a lot of NATO members, you know, for all that the U.S. thinks about NATO as a security mechanism, as a mechanism for American power projection, you know, for the European actors in NATO have agency. And I, I'm going to sideline Canada for the time being. I apologize to our Canadian listeners. But the European members of NATO... I, I'm not going to uh, stand for that. We, would, we do not tolerate Canada erasure on this podcast. On this podcast. <laughs> I, 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 long may the Maple Leaf uh, wave. Um, <laughs> but, but the European members of NATO all have agency here. And many of the states that wanted to join NATO, that had joined NATO throughout the 1990s, did so expressly to get security against Russia. So adding Russia to NATO would have been a political non-starter just in the context of the times, right? When you've added the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, uh, Romania by the late 1990s, you're not getting consensus to add Russia, right? And, and, and understandably so. I, I don't think that's a. I don't. I don't think we can begrudge the Eastern Europeans that 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 preference. So how do things proceed in the 1990s? In particular, how does NATO? play in to the new grand strategy of the 1990s, which, which you know, just to, to lay our cards on the table, we would define as a grand strategy of armed primacy, organized mm-hmm. essentially around United States military and, of course, economic and even to some degree cultural, but that is, of course, embedded in capitalism, dominance of the world. So how does NATO play into that? Um, and particularly, what is the grand strategy of the 1990s, or how would you categorize the U.S. grand strategy of the 1990s? So I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious what you would do. I categorize as poorly thought out and poorly executed. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me unpack that a little bit. Um, look, the American grand strategy in the 1990s into the 2000s into today, to a certain degree, has been you know some kind, some version of primacy, whether we call it armed primacy, whatever it is. It's just it's just primacy. Uh, wants to be number one. The U.S. wants to extend its unipolar era as long as possible, and nowadays it wants to get it back. NATO in the 1990s. For, I would became, just just want to quickly editorialize for also poorly thought out reasons that are mostly assumptions based in geostrategic analysis from seven decades ago. Sorry, but sure. Please, I, I, I mean, uh, right? That, that <laughs> it, it is a. I, I'm probably a little more sympathetic to the impulse than you, but I, but I fundamentally are. <laughs> no, but, 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 but here's where we overlap. I fundamentally agree that this has been poorly thought out and the assumptions haven't been checked. And, you know, in some sense, strategy is about an autopilot in a very dangerous way today. That's again, editorialized. So, but let me walk back to the 1990s first. Yes, second. please you know, do. NATO, NATO became the centerpiece of, um, America's post-war grand strategy. And that makes sense because there really wasn't anything else going on in the 1990s that would mobilize the American people, that could focus policymakers' minds. So this question of what will NATO be was the focal point of American grand strategy. And the Clinton administration very much made NATO expansion the centerpiece of its own ambitions. And then the W. Bush administration continued it, as did the Obama and even Trump administration. Let's recognize that um, for all the hemming and hawing about Mr. Trump. 
However, and this is where I say poorly thought out and poorly executed, in all the discussions I have read, there is never a consideration of, well, what will this do vis-a-vis Russia in a deep political sense? You know, the, the concern with NATO expansion vis-a-vis Russia was always was always interpreted as Russian President Boris Yeltsin having problems with how NATO was going to expand rather than the reality of expansion, point number one. Point number two, there is never really a consideration given to, well, how, now that we've taken on these smaller states, these newer states in Eastern Europe, how shall we defend them? You know, in all the congressional testimony and all the internal memoranda, I've never seen a deep discussion of the U.S. debating how it's actually going to provide defense for these states, as Article 5 may require the United States to do. Indeed, and this we can go even deeper on this, for all the United States uh, was taking on added security burdens in the 1990s, it cut the military. Right, it cut the size of the military, and it didn't deploy forces to Eastern Europe. There but, are th- one thing, one thing. I think that was partially an artifact of the so-called revolution in military affairs. I mean, my 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 hypothesis is that the Gulf War persuaded a generation that they could have primacy on the cheap and essentially continue to remove that strategic decision from the public. So I think when they cut the military budget, what they're trying to do is yeah. basically try to use GPS. You know, all the all yeah, the yeah, stuff yeah. that was heralded as the RMA. Um, I, I don't get disagree. empire on the cheap. Yeah. Oh, I, I I agree with that. I'm just simply saying to your point a minute ago, these assumptions, these uh, these ideas were never evaluated, right. and, and there's a case to be made that those assumptions really are poorly thought out. Uh, as we see today with the U.S. trying to figure out, well, now that you may have to defend the Baltic states, how the right. heck are you going to defend these small states? They're not and, going to. I mean, this is the whole my whole theory is they're just not really going to. They might do some face saving thing, but that this is what we'll get to this later. But yeah. my major problem with the I, I mean, there's a ton of problems, but like even from a geostrategic analysis, like yes. hard-headed realist, yeah, yeah. you can't promise something that you're never going to deliver. And I think the United States does that as sort of the cornerstone of its grand yes. strategy. Th- th- that's what I mean. Decades. Poor, that, yeah. I agree with that. That's where I say poorly thought out and poorly executed. You know, it's if you're not going to follow through on this commitment, do you really want to stake your national reputation and the security of these states who are relying upon you right. uh, to this? It's almost it's it's vaguely immoral. Uh, yeah. number it's one. cruel, I think. <laughs> it's cruel, that's right. It, it's disingenuous, number one. Yeah. And then uh, number two, if you are going to do it, you know, you, you Danny, you referred to Empire on the Chief. That's exactly right. Uh, but if but it, 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 but we needed to test those assumptions and have a forthright conversation about the with the American people, with the international community about those ideas. Instead, we you know, the the Clinton administration, the W. Bush administration presented NATO expansion as this thing that was cheap and easy to do, would never really impose costs, you know, and you could cut the defense budget and expand American influence. And so when you start talking about how it factors into American grand strategy, you know, throughout the Cold War, the U.S. thought long and hard about how it was going to service its commitments and whether it had to cut certain commitments to meet it, what, it, what its resources could do, what its public was willing to do. In the 1990s, that very close link between ends and means, which you know was never perfect, but was you know on what was being sussed out on a day to day basis, that just went off the rails. And for all that American policymakers highlight that the U.S. does good in the world, and I do believe that the U.S. does good in the world, it's also been clear for the last several election cycles the American public, in some visceral sense, senses that something has gone awry with Mr. Obama, Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden all suggesting a more pragmatic, less expansionist, more judicious approach to the U.S. in the world. Mr. Biden may be the exception on that one, but all broadly calling for some kind of tighter link between the ends and means. 
One, one question I have, because obviously yeah. the, the big events of the 1990s, I, I think what the United States tries to do in the 1990s is organize itself around stopping genocides and things like that, that it would be the legit, legitimately the world's policeman to a large degree. So how do the Balkan interventions play into NATO or do they not play into NATO? And does NATO assume a new role, particularly in the 1998 intervention? Uh, 98, 99, Kosovo, you mean? So the Balkan Wars are really interesting, right? For many academics, many policymakers, the Balkan Wars and the fact that the European members of NATO, because NATO had not yet expanded, we're talking about unified Germany, France, Britain, Italy, couldn't get their act together to intervene in Bosnia and Herzegovina and following the collapse of Yugoslavia. That was the sign that the U.S. had to leave. And if the U.S. was going to lead, it had to do so through NATO. NATO legitimates and it magnifies American power. So for many people, that that's kind of the way in which you get NATO expansion. Once the U.S. begins assuming leadership for stopping these genocides, NATO expansion falls on as a nice corollary. It shows that the U.S. has to organize Europe to do these good things. Um, I think there are some problems with this argument. Number one, we now know from documents that have been released that the U.S. was moving to expand NATO even in 1991, 92, 93. That is before the Balkan Wars kick off. So it's hard to say the Balkan Wars are causal if the U.S. is already doing something. Number one. Uh, and number two, NATO itself, after it expands, doesn't really uh, organize itself fully to stopping genocide, right? It, it, it does a lot. And we see this in uh, the Kosovo operation, but it still doesn't fully organize itself around it. The European members aren't really buying the military hardware to do interventions. The US isn't really transforming itself entirely. Transformation was the term of art uh, when we started talking about the art. Defense RMA, transformation, then, baby. Yeah, it's all over uh, in the 90s and 2000s. Man, yeah. I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on that. That was a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> that's where I started getting my gray hair. Um, so, you know, NATO very much takes on these new roles in the 1990s. The idea is that NATO will either go out of area or out of business, meaning stopping all sorts of bad things in the periphery, uh, or we can call it the, pejoratively the periphery. But NATO doesn't fully buy into this. And you can even see the Western European states, the Eastern European states buying into it to the extent that it'll placate the Americans who want to give NATO a reason to do things after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But they're kind of dragging their heels. They're not doing, they're not buying a lot. They're cutting military spending. They're doing all the things that we later criticize them for. And it's out of pure self-interest. So, you know, NATO takes on this role when it comes, it takes on this political obligation in stopping genocides, but it doesn't really operationalize that in any deep sense of the term, which again goes to the point that NATO only, you know, very poorly fits into American grand strategy. What's the, I mean, what's the counter argument from, from Europe then as to why NATO continues to exist? I mean, I, I, I don't, think that the U.S. argument that NATO should, you know, become the Justice League and go around the world solving problems is a good yeah. one, but I'm But at curious, least it's an argument, yeah. Well, yeah, at least it's it's an argument. It's not just like, well, it's here, we might as well keep it. So I'm curious if, if there was a European counter-argument to this or if, if it just was, like, existential. NATO exists, let's just keep it. Look, the Europeans, God bless them, can't make up their mind. You know, on, on the one hand, the French are deeply upset of American hyperpower. They're worried about the U.S. running amok in the world. I'll use the French as an example here. Uh, they're worried about the U.S. doing things like the Iraq War in 03. You know, the, the, there's a clear recognition that an expanded NATO and the U.S. running riding roughshod over Europe very much limits Europe, Europe's uh, ability to do its own thing. On the other hand, uh, NATO is a great way of subsidizing European security. 
right? The U.S. is assuming the difficulty of reassuring the French against the Germans, the Poles against the Germans, the Germans against the Russians. You know, it solves all these traditional European insecurities. And it also lets them cut their defense budgets at a time when the European economies aren't doing particularly well, when the EU is kicking off and this question of how will the EU pay for itself. Remember, the EU is not a cheap enterprise. Uh, so the U.S. providing security via NATO is also, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice indirect subsidy for the for various European projects. And so the Europeans can't, I'm speaking very broadly here, but the Europeans can't make up their minds. They love the American security subsidy. They hate, therefore, the American dominance that comes with it. And so, you know, it's a hell of a drug, I guess. So how is Russia responding? I mean, Russia's just doing great in the 1990s, as we all know. How are they yeah, responding right. to all these NATO uh, efforts at, at expansion and, and the pretty also the assumption of new roles, which is really... Yeah. Crucial. I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, but the first time NATO deploys forces in the Kosovo intervention, right? It's not the first time NATO deploys forces. It is the first time that NATO acts on its own without UNSC right. authorization. Right. Yeah, obviously, Korea, right. NATO deploys forces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, NATO members deploy forces. Right. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. remember, yeah, so, so remember the, there, there are two questions here, right? One is this question about Kosovo per se. The other one is this broader question about Russia. So, so let me take the second one all back to the first one. Look, Kosovo is a really scary wake-up call for a lot of countries. Kosovo is a very interesting operation, right? Remember, the UN doesn't authorize the operation. And this is at a time when this question about the responsibility to protect what role the international community can and will play in protecting vulnerable populations from illegitimate governments is very much under discussion. And the UN rejects calls for uh, humanitarian intervention for NATO airstrikes to stop massacres of Kosovo Albanians because Russia and to a lesser extent China are on the US, UNSC and are going to block it. Yet NATO takes it upon itself to authorize and legitimate the operation. So that's kind of a question mark right there, right? It's just kind of a group of states voting to say, this is a good idea. We approve. We're going to do it now. That's a very interesting approach to legitimacy. So Kosovo is, is an underappreciated moment, not just of NATO NATO operating, but also kind of an, an encapsulation of how the U.S. thought it could influence and shape European security, global security affairs to suit its interests. But this question about Russia is also hugely important because in the 1990s, you know, we often present this sort of a NATO expansion as everything was glorious with NATO expansion in the U.S.-Russian relationship until Vladimir Putin reared his evil head and all of a sudden things went to hell in a handbasket. You know, and, and you see this on Twitter all the time, although I've quit Twitter. You, you saw it on Twitter all the time. I, I think this is the biggest load of baloney you could possibly find outside of a warehouse from New Jersey. And the reason I say this, uh, Boris Yeltsin and every, everyone else in the Russian leadership throughout the 1990s is screaming bloody murder at the possibility of NATO expansion. They go along with it, of course, but that's a political calculation. It's a calculation of I'm an economic basket case. I have nothing else to push back against. I can't challenge all this directly. What am I going to do? Cut off my banker on this one? You know, so, so they go along with it, but they're screaming bloody murder. And the U.S. recognizes that, or at least there are diplomatic cables and memoranda indicating that many policymakers recognize that NATO expansion was going to be a very bitter pill for Russians to swallow, not just the Russian establishment, but Russia writ large, population policymakers writ large, and that over time there were going to be this, these potential points of friction. The U.S. tried to make the, the 
expansion palatable. Jim Goldgeier has written quite elegantly on this one, as have others, by making concessions about the timing of expansion, modes of dialogue with Russia. Yeah, but who but cares? They, they did it in the end. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the point. These are, all, yeah. these are all secondary. Uh, I, I, I would be a little more generous. I, the way I think of it is they are offering political concessions to a fundamentally strategic problem for Russia. And that's just not going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's, that's also to me to reeks of the '90s nonsense of of multilateralism. Oh, but actually, it's uh, over the velvet, the velvet glove over the iron fist. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. The velvet glove over the iron fist. Right. Uh, And Uh, with a couple of. Sorry, yeah, Josh. Please continue. Oh no! So I was just going to say, you know, so, so throughout the '90s. Yeltsin and other Russian leaders are getting more and more PO'd at the United States. And then even into the early, early 2000s, uh, Russian leaders are pushing back quite strongly. Uh, they're worried about n- not just NATO expansion as a military alliance, but also what it indicates about how dominant the United States is going to be over the over European security affairs, right? NATO isn't treated as simply a military alliance. It's the idea that the United States, A, is dominating European security, and B, that Russia doesn't totally have a seat at the table. And let's be clear here, the Russians also do things to guarantee themselves a seat at the table, especially from the late 2000s and 2010s onward. But let's not just make this one-sided here. Uh, but let's 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 get to the 2010s before we sure. start on that. So so the big first expansion is in 1999 when the 99. Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland join, and then right. of course in 2001 you get the advent of the War on Terror, which right. precedes the next two two big um, expansions in 2004, and really that's the big one. And then again in that's 2009. But how that's does right. the War on Terror shape the history of NATO? Only exercise of Article Five, so big deal, yeah. Only exercise of Article 5. Uh, Could you explain what Article 5 is? I don't think we actually did. Right. Even though we uh, dweebs know what it is. What is the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, uh, us pointy-headed academics, right? (laughs) So when the the NATO treaty was signed in in 1949, the Treaty of Washington, uh, it contains a number of articles covering political consultations, all all the stuff that an alliance treaty would normally cover. But NATO Article 5 is the, is the clause that says an attack on one shall be considered an attack on all, and member states commit to render all assistance deemed necessary to those attacked. Now, the key phrase is deemed necessary, because this has been popularly interpreted as, well, if the Baltic states, for example, get attacked, then the U.S. has to go to war because that's what the assistance deemed necessary is. Right? An attack on yeah, one They will attacked. certainly deem it not necessary. I promise everyone, yeah. I... I I have my suspicions over what will be deemed necessary under certain conditions, right? But nevertheless, the key phrase is deemed necessary. Some people interpret that as saying the U.S. will go to war for if, its mem- if its allies are attacked. Otherwise, you could just simply more generally say, hey, you know, an ally has been attacked. I deem it necessary to scream a lot. You know, lots of things can be lumped into deemed necessary. But NATO Article 5, when the, when the 9-11 attacks occurred, NATO Article 5 was invoked at the NATO by NATO ambassadors, NATO representatives. It was deemed an attack on the United States, and NATO members offered their assistance. Now, remember, uh, the United States actually didn't want NATO Article 5. Right? Then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld famously did not want uh, NATO Article 5 because it implied that NATO members might go along with the United States and the Afghan, what became the Afghan war. And there was a concern that multilateral mechanisms like that would actually slow down the U.S. effort and slow down what the U.S. might decide to do in response to the attacks of 9-11. So NATO Article 5 is invoked in 9-11. The question of what does the global war on terror do for NATO, it does a little bit of everything. 
You know, NATO member states end up going to Afghanistan, heading up some of the security assistance there. Uh, so they're involved in Afghanistan. The only time, the, really the furthest out of area operation for NATO of all time. NATO, though, famously doesn't support, it doesn't do a replay of the Kosovo operation in the 1990s, famously doesn't legitimate the U.S. using force in Iraq in 03. Instead, you have this thing called the coalition of the willing. Uh, and different NATO member states decide to contribute to different degrees to various U.S. military operations. As With important Britain being uh, number one, <laughs> number one behind us, as always. Britain, uh, you know, <laughs> loyal Albion, as these things go. Uh, lo- loyal Albion, exactly. Loyal Albion, right. <laughs> the other thing that the GWAT, the Global War on Terror, as the cool kids call it, the GWOT does. <laughs> yeah, super cool. <laughs> uh, super cool, right? Like my college self is now as disgusted at myself. Uh, the other thing it does, and Paul Post and others have written about this, it also provides a mechanism for some of these states in Eastern Europe uh, to actually find a way to currying favor with the United States, right? So the Baltic states, for example, when the global war on terror kicks off, the Baltic states aren't in NATO, and it's not really clear whether they'll be in NATO. But the Baltic states contribute quite heavily to U.S. military operations, and in doing so, both gain diplomatic chits with the United States that aid their NATO membership aspirations, gain chits with other NATO members like the Danes and others who may want to see the Baltic states in NATO, and of course, uh, just more generally, demonstrate their ostensible military bona fides. Right? They gain uh, influence with certain military members and others that help their membership aspirations. It's not. Ju- it's not just the Balts, right? We could point to other states as well that do the same thing. The Georgians, for example, really, really, really wanted into NATO and had a lot of their troops in Iraq serving with the U.S. when the Georgian War of 08 kicked off. They had to be airlifted back on so much short notice. This is fairly obviously an effort by the Georgians to, again, curry favor with the U.S. in order to improve their NATO membership aspirations. So I'm, 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 I'm saying two things at once. The global war on terror both kind of divides NATO in terms of what the existing NATO members will do, but it also acts as an indirect route to help those who seek NATO membership to find ways of seeking it. And so, uh, of course, in 1999, uh, Vladimir Putin ascends to power in Russia. Um, So how does he respond uh, initially to the war on terror? I mean, Russia has its own concerns with this fundamentalist Islamic terror, right? And we have to be careful how we how we express that. But Russia wasn't opposed to NATO to, to NATO doing this initially, right? It, it also, you know, frankly, if I'm sitting in Moscow, getting NATO to not focus on Europe and to go to other parts of the world far away, it's great, right? It it it, it kind of acts as a political release valve. Yeah, it relieves some pressure. Relieves some pressure, and it, look, and it acts as an indirect subsidy to Russia, right? If the U.S. can solve. If the U.S. could have pulled off its cockamamie scheme and centralization, building a democracy that was going to pave the way. Hey, it's for, still going to work out, Josh. Calm down. We, it's only been 20 years. <laughs> too early it's to only, tell. Yeah, too right, early to tell. French Revolution, right? It's the French Revolution. <laughs> right. uh, had the U.S. been able to pull off the various Afghanistan schemes, the Iraq schemes, and indeed democracy and liberalism had taken root uh, in Central Asia, you know, I think Putin wouldn't have been thrilled with the with the liberal part of it. But I think he would have been more than happy to have some way of getting rid of uh, Central Asian Islamic terrorism, limiting the risk of fundamentalist Islamic terrorism coming at him. So, you know, in his mind, look, it's a political release valve, distracts the U.S., gets NATO off its back for a little bit. He gets to play nice with the U.S. for a while. And heck, if the U.S. actually pulls this thing off, Maybe it goes well for Russia. Maybe it gets a maybe it gets a Benny. So why right. why not? And and so then um and and also I just want to make clear that when Josh is saying um, 
fundamental Islamic terrorism. He's referring to the perspective of, of Putin. He's not making large claims because no, we talked no. a bit on the show about like the problem of terror as a category in terrorism. Sure. But, so I, I know I just wanted to sure. make that clear. I, 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 yeah. No, I appreciate the clarification. We should be very careful with the phrases that we use here because these are loaded concepts. These are very difficult <laughs> yeah, things that, to talk about. That, and also becomes part of sort of the, the lingua franca of security um, in, in the yeah. 2000s. So I just want to make yeah. that clear. So then in 2004... Um, NATO expands again. This is the fifth NATO expansion, and uh, entering the alliance uh, are Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. So uh, maybe you could explain, this is the biggest NATO expansion to date um, by far. Uh, what What is the character of this expansion, and, and how uh, are policymakers both in the United States and Russia viewing it? Well, so... I'm glad you asked this question. It's called, this round of expansion is called the big bounce, right? Or, or, or the, it's the big one. I forget the exact term of it. Um, but there's something very interesting that occurs between 99 and 2000 and 2004. When you had the first round of NATO expansion, I want to, I want to draw the contrast out. So that's, it's actually super interesting. When you had the first round of NATO expansion, the U.S. Congress held an ungodly number of hearings. I mean, you can download the congressional testimony, and it's pages. It's hundreds, if not thousands of pages of testimony. They heard from everyone that could testify, you know, from George Cannon on down. They had everyone and their mother show up for a hearing. Uh, I, I, I was delusional, and I actually went back, and I was tracking the congressional testimony for what became the 04 expansion, and there's almost no hearings. Uh, you know, the, In fact, the hearing on the security implications of this round of expansion is held concurrent with the Iraq war hearing, so you can imagine that the focus wasn't all that uh, profound. And so there's kind of this – there's almost this sense of a runaway train that comes out of this, right? It's like – yeah, we expanded NATO back in the '90s. I guess we, well, I guess we can keep going and not really worry about it. So there's almost this foreign policy on autopilot and the assumptions behind NATO expansion, whether it was going to generate benefits, whether it was going to be sustainable for the U.S. That's just not really there. It's not really looked into it in any deep sense of the term. How does Iraq play into that? Well, you know, so remember, Iraq is invaded in March 2003. Sorry, just Iraq is invaded in March 2003. Liberated in March 2003, obviously. Right, that would welcome uh, us as liberators. Was, was it wasn't invaded. You know, we liberate. The run up to the war was when the U.S. was debating whether to go forward with this, with this second round of post-Cold War NATO expansion. And so you literally have the Senate Foreign Relations Committee then being headed by Biden uh, actually evaluating whether to go into Iraq concurrent with whether it was a good idea for the U.S. to take on these seven new alliance members in NATO. And so uh, you can imagine when it comes to the actual use of force, some of the assumptions undergirding NATO expansion in the second round of it weren't getting real hearings. Hey, are we going to be able to defend the Baltic states? Hey, is Slovenia going to be adding a lot to the alliance's defense? You know, is Bulgaria really ready to spend 2% or whatever it is of its GDP on defense affairs, none of those questions were really asked in any serious term because Iraq is occupying all the all the time and attention. Uh, at the same time, you can easily tell a story that says, had Iraq not happened, some of the questions about whether NATO should take on these new members might have been questioned in some way, shape, or form. And that's the United States side. 
And so, yeah, let's go to, to Russia. Yeah, the Russia. So Putin's been in power for a few ne- years at this point. He, he's yeah. looking to be a more stable leader. Um, what does he and the Russian security establishment think of these further NATO expansions? It, it's still not a good idea. You know, he's, he's he bore, you know, it's the first time he's in charge when NATO expansions occurring. Previously, it was Boris Yeltsin, he, you know, his patron. Uh, but Yeltsin, but 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 Putin is clearly quite frustrated with this. You know, he there are cables indicating that uh, the Russian leadership is quite worried about NATO marching eastward, redividing Europe. Uh, that the Baltic states are kind of a weird category. Why are you? Why are you? If you if you the United States are seeking a good relationship with Russia, why are you expanding up to Russia's border? How you know what's the logic of this? Wouldn't it make more sense to seek a cooperative relationship? Missile defenses factor into this at this time because the Bush administration is very much taking a stance, uh, pulling the U.S. out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Uh, Russia is quite concerned about that with possible missile bases in Eastern Europe. So Putin is really becoming more and more frustrated with this process of NATO expansion. Although I think it's also worth remembering that even in the early aughts, when Putin is first in charge, Russia is still a basket case, right? It's only a few years away from the collapse of the ruble in the late 1990s. The submarine Kursk famously sinks uh, in the early 2000s and kind of it kind of epitomizes the collapse of, of Russian military power. Good thing the U.S. had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I, I uh, Not the submarine, to, just the whole shock therapy. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I was worried about, general, about the submarine. Oh, yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, shock therapy didn't go particularly well for Russia. The collapse of the ruble was a real, you know, gut punch. Uh, so Putin's also somewhat focused inward on rebuilding Russian power. Remember, he has a very populist platform of breaking the power of some of these oligarchs that have come to dominate in almost criminal fashion Russian society. This isn't to excuse Putin or say he himself is not a criminal, but that he runs or at least, you know, wraps himself in the cloak of being a populist leader. So his opportunity and his wherewithal to, again, oppose uh, NATO expansion really isn't there at this moment in time. He's making diplomatic noise, but there's not much that one can be done with it. That can be done with it. But of course, that factors into to jump ahead a few years. This factors into his decision in 2007 to very openly at the Munich Security Conference throw down the gauntlet and say, "What the hell is going on with NATO expansion?" You know, describing NATO expansion as a horrible idea. The U.S. as this great betrayer of Russia. The idea of the West as a perfidious and untrustworthy set of partners. You know, here he's very much recognizing uh, the, the the overturning of those non-expansion pledges I mentioned from 1990. He's very much recognizing the failure of uh, U.S. engagement with Russia to generate a mutually beneficial security arrangement. He's very much emphasizing the sense that NATO expansions might be oriented against Russia. Uh, and so he's, you know, by 2007, things have very much taken a turn. Uh, we know what the reaction to to that 2007 speech was in a practical sense, uh, which was uh, the decision in 2008 to offer membership to Georgia and Ukraine, uh, kind of a thumb in the eye. Uh, but was there any? Uh, what was the what was the immediate reaction to that speech? I mean, was there any discussion of uh, like maybe they have a point, or they're being unreasonable, or we got to watch this? This is a this is a real problem that could be brewing. Any any you know, you know what was what was the sense of those remarks? I can. I can just say that, uh, you know, I haven't looked, speci- I haven't seen anything specifically on the Munich Security Conference speech per se. Uh, I will say, though, that to your point, look, by in early 2008, just a, nine months later, the U.S. Uh, goes forward with the, sec- with the possibility of expansion to Ukraine and to Georgia. And we have diplomatic cables. We have the, I keep emphasizing declassified documents because it gives you a sense of what was being discussed. Policymakers are very much aware this is a middle, that 
doing NATO expansion again, uh, particularly to these days, is a giant middle finger to Putin at a time when the Russian establishment has said, we're really worried about this. And so there's kind of this tacit dismissiveness of what Russia is saying, right? There's this idea that says Putin's doing this for show, he's doing this for popular consumption. Uh, there's a narrative at this point in time that NATO had never, that the U.S. had never promised not to expand NATO. That's a double negative, but you get the idea. And so by the time the U.S. offers this membership pledge to Ukraine and Georgia, Putin's Munich speech is just kind of taken as an early sign that Putin maybe can't be trusted, isn't a good faith actor. And so it's, it's basically dismissed more than anything else. Or at least that's what we get from reading the context. So that brings us naturally to 2008. So maybe you could explain why that year is so important. Uh, and particularly, maybe you could actually place George W. Bush in context, because I think it right. is important that it's his last year. I think yes. he's going out, he realizes he's not going out on the highest of notes, and he wants to do something big. So maybe you could just explain what happens there. That would be great. Sure. So so 2008 was a very good year. I was 24. Uh, sounds like Willie Nelson. In in February, March 2008, NATO is scheduled to have a meeting at the Bucharest summit in Bucharest, right? This is Romania, one of the states that's only recently joined NATO as well. And in the run-up to it, there's a discussion inside the United States about possibly taking Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And the Bush administration, W. Bush himself, is very much in the lead on this. He wants to push this issue. We can hypothesize as to why. Interestingly, though, this is a moment when many of the United States' European allies really step up and say, this shall not pass, right? The French and the Germans in particular are mightily pissed off at this idea. And, and, and Condi Rice actually recounts some of this in her, in her memoirs, so far as we can take those uh, at face value. And it's only in a... Vi- it, it requires a lot of hemming and hawing that we get this really half-baked thing called the Bucharest Summit Declaration, which has been the news of late. What ends up happening is the NATO as an alliance always issues a summit, you know, a summary of what's been discussed at the summit. And at the Bucharest Summit Declaration, NATO says as an alliance, we look forward to Ukraine. Ukraine and Georgia will be alliance members, and we look forward to the day that they will become alliance members. But we're not taking steps to to offer, we're not offering them what's called a membership action plan, an actual plan of action to get them into the alliance. So it's saying, you will be a member, but we're not going to give you a timeline or a process to do that, which is a really weird thing to do, right? It's like promising you something, but not explaining how or when or why you're going to get it. If you're, if you're thinking geopolitics, this is a recipe for disaster, saying to countries like Russia, you know, you got this problem coming at you. I'm not going to tell you when it's going to be ap- operationalized. So you know, if you're worried about this, maybe now's the time to get to get to get after it. So it's a real geopolitical problem if you're sitting in Moscow. And so this promise is very much a W. Bush in- initiative. It's opposed by the French and the Germans. The Brits take the lead in brokering this compromise. And they're Thank the issue. British. Thank you, British. Uh, and there the issue kind of sits with Ukraine and Georgia, just kind of these appendages that, um, you know, sit out there. And of course, the issue is kind of then put to rest for a while because you have the Russo-Georgia War of 08, which very much demonstrates uh, that Russia will not sit idly by. 
So let's go to that. So so yep. what happens with the the Russian invasion of Georgia and what links right. besides proximity and yep. time do we have to to suggest that it is a direct response to Bush's declaration about Ukraine and Georgia? Well, I I, I want to be careful how I say this. I don't think there's any evidence of a direct direct response, right? But uh, but I I would be hard pressed to believe that it isn't response in some way, right? Where Georgia maybe over overplays its hand, it calculates it can get too much from Russia. And Russia is very much interested in kind of showing that, nope, I will not allow Georgia to go quietly into, into NATO. And Russian brutal, Russian Russia is a thuggish actor in this context. We shouldn't give Russia a pass in any way, shape, or form. They're acting in very nasty, kind of uh, not even Machiavellian, just thuggish fashion. But one thing the Russo-Georgia war demonstrates is that if NATO is going to take Georgia into the alliance, it might have to actually fight a war with Russia, right? It might, it's only going to do this uh, if it's willing to actually fight Russia. And I and if I'm sitting in Moscow, the idea is basically to say, I assume the U.S. doesn't really want to fight me. I assume they understand that I have more interest in Georgia than vice versa. So if I make this problem bad enough for the West, I de facto get to stop NATO expansion to Georgia and perhaps even Ukraine. And so, uh, the Georgian War has its own localized dynamics, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend to know all the causes, all the t- twists and turns, but it seems very clear that George, that the war is at least partly a signal to the West of, hey, you don't get to do this thing called NATO expansion into my former imperial territory, former back into my backyard today, without really paying some costs and really generating some real risk. So it's it's a kind of a th- Russia throw down the gauntlet. So, Josh, I think um, this is probably a good place to leave it because if we go much further, we're going to get into Ukraine, and that's a whole episode worth of material that uh, you know we've already done a full interview. So, why don't we end on this question, which is related to the the Bucharest Memorandum and the Georgia War, and a theme that I think has come up uh, a few times in this conversation: the the difference of opinion, let's say, between European members of NATO and the United States yep. on what exactly the alliance should be. Yep. Um, you know, when we talk about the decision to offer this kind of lukewarm guarantee of membership to Ukraine and Georgia, uh, and then, you know, to having Wasim sort of the the Georgia war and the immediate aftermath of that, uh, does that change, uh, you know, does that open any eyes in Europe? Does that cause any kind of, uh, you know, widening gap between what European members want out of NATO and what the United States is expecting to get out of NATO? I mean, I, I, I think it does that, but it also does something else. I'll flag both these things. Um, Look, it makes the European members of NATO as a whole aware that Russia is now going to be very punchy, that f- further NATO expansion eastward uh, is only going to result in crises with Russia, right? And so that's the big lesson for for, for, the, for Europe and also to a lesser extent the United States. The problem that emerges, though, is that it also opens up a schism in the European members of NATO. Uh, so countries like Germany, France, Britain, Italy – uh, the, 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 let's just call them the Central and Western European member states, really don't have any desire for this, right? They, they recognize that they've never had security so good, so why, why rock the boat? Whereas if you're in Poland, the Baltic states, Hungary, or some of the newer members closer to Russia, you're going, yeah, I'm worried about Russia. It's now punchy. I want NATO to go even further east, and maybe you know, if we're going to have this clash, let's have this clash. Let's just finally have it out. And so, and we kind of see this uh, a little bit today with Ukraine, 
where states like Poland and others are some of the most forward leaning on trying to really use the Ukraine crisis to, you know, to, to weaken Russia. Whereas many of the other members of NATO are the mo- are some of the more worried about incurring unnecessary risks and perhaps seeing escalation. So I think I I think the Georgia war, uh, in some ways, epitomizes or it catalyzes this schism that we're still living with inside of NATO that the U.S. has to manage. And to 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 put a bow on it, uh, NATO expansion has done many things, but it's ultimately made the alliance the United States's alliance management problems. Uh, really, really challenging because it's now the U.S. went from having to manage 14 member states when the Cold War ended to having to manage uh, 30 member 30 member states today, and that's just a lot more you know people to deal with, a lot more interest to deconflict. It's just a bigger problem, and we see it every day right now with the Ukraine war. Josh, thank you so much, everyone. Joshua, our Itzkowitz Schifferinson from BU to UMD. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and, and we'll definitely have you back to discuss the further goings on in the history of NATO. Josh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great, guys. Thank you. Thank you.